A friend of mine once told me a story about one of his college classes. And he was studying to be a pastor, so he was in a seminary. And this professor that he had been in his class through the entirety of the semester, had had him in other classes before, came in, and without any setup, without any warning, without any context, without any disclaimer, pulled out a letter and began to read it. And as he did, all the students in the classroom realized that this was a letter left by this professor's fiance, telling him that she, in fact, no longer wanted to be his fiance. A real-life Dear John letter read to a class with no context or warning. Just the thought of it, because awkward things make me a little vomity, just makes me real tense inside of my stomach. And so, when I was writing this sermon, and the initial thought came into my mind to name the sermon Dear John, that story immediately sponged that idea. So we're calling it Salutations. Because this is a letter from John, given to John by God. And so Revelation begins as this incredible epistle from God to John to circulate around to seven churches. And then beyond that, to circulate to all the churches in the world. And then, as we have it right now in our hands, to circulate to all the churches throughout history. This is a letter from God to us. And it begins, like any other good letter, with a salutation, with an introduction. And so today, we're going to allow the participants in the book of Revelation to reveal themselves. And we're going to see who it is that makes up this letter, who is writing this letter to us, and why that matters as we continue on, beginning in the next couple weeks, looking at the seven letters to the churches, and then on into the prophecy of the text. We'll be able to have a framework of this is how we should not only interpret this book, but this is how we should respond to this book, and more importantly, to the Christ that it reveals. And so let's look at Revelation chapter 1. Picking up where we left off last week, starting in verse 4, and we'll read to verse 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth, to him who loves us. And has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, it is such an amazing gift that you give us as you just reveal yourself so clearly and so awesomely through your word. 
And God, as we look into this book, as you reveal yourself, as you reveal your church, as you reveal your son and the fullness of who he is, help us to do our best to understand the fullness of your nature, the fullness of your gospel, and the beauty of your son, the power of your spirit. God, you know we're so limited right here and right now. But we just ask that your spirit would just fill us up and teach us the words that we need to know and understand so that we can worship you in spirit and truth for who you are. So that we can believe you are who you say you are. And so that we can leave here knowing the work that we have to do as we go out to love our neighbor as ourselves, care for those in need, and spread the good news of the gospel everywhere that we go. So speak to us this morning. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We've talked a lot as we've looked through the book of Genesis before this, going through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and now Revelation. We've talked about the incredible nature of the Bible and how the Bible is something incredibly unique in our world and in literature. It's something, there's just nothing else like it. Not only because it's one book that tells one story about one God and one Christ made up of 66 smaller books. Not only because of the diversity in genre and style all the way throughout. But the fact that we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired. Now, if you've grown up in church or if you've been around church long enough to pick up some church language, maybe this is something that you've heard yourself say very often. Maybe you've said that I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe the Bible is the divine Word of God, that He spoke to these people who wrote these words down, and they might have been their hand, but it's God's Word. And we might say that on a regular basis. But to really think about what that means should be awe-inspiring. That not only does God want to speak to us, not only does God want to reveal Himself to us, but he allows us to be part of the process. That the Bible is not an alien divine book, but it's a book that God gave through his Holy Spirit to these people, over 40 different authors, and he used their lives and their stories and their abilities and their skills to craft this word. And so there's a human element to Scripture that reminds us of the truth of who Christ is, the word made flesh, reminding us that God is deeply intimate and deeply personal. And so this passage begins with a name. And I like that he just starts this way. It just gets to the point. I'm not really good at small talk. If you've ever had small talk with me, you understand. I'm not really good at small talk. And so it's nice just to jump in there. And John isn't messing around. He just says, John, to the seven churches. Okay, we get it. John is here. John is the one that is communicating this letter. And it can be really easy to just sit back and think of John as a clerk. That he's just sitting down, taking notes, writing all this stuff down. But the fact that this begins with John means that we should pay attention. Because while God is the ultimate author of the book of Revelation, clearly John was chosen for a reason. That God was using John to communicate this message for a purpose. And so we need to understand who John is to help us understand the point that the book is trying to make. And so who is this John. John, when we see him first and foremost, was a man who was called by Jesus to be a disciple. 
one of the 12 original disciples that followed after Jesus. And so here was a man who was willing to leave his trade. He was willing to leave his security and his safety. He was willing to leave his family and follow after Jesus just because Jesus called him. He saw Christ and recognized something different about him immediately and began walking with Jesus. And because of that, he's someone that not only walked with Jesus, but was taught by Jesus. Directly from the words of Jesus' mouth, John was receiving all of it. He served with Jesus. He was one of the first people that took the message of the kingdom of God out into the world because Jesus went around preaching, and then once he called these disciples, he said, now it's your turn. Now I want you to go into the towns and the cities and proclaim the kingdom of God. And John was one of those first message bearers that took the gospel into the world. He was someone who was called by Jesus, but also loved by Jesus. And we talked about this last week. In John's gospel, as he writes his account of the life of Christ, he doesn't refer to himself by name. He doesn't refer to himself in personal pronouns. But John exclusively refers to himself in his own gospel as the disciple that Jesus loved. And so we know that John has this intimate relationship with Christ. But not only was John a disciple, he was also an apostle. John was one of the founding fathers of the Christian church, part of this group that Jesus turned over the church and said, now you go be my witnesses all over the world. Now you take this message and build my church. But I think John is one of the apostles that we forget. Because while we do have some of his apostolic letters in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, at least for me, when I think about the apostles that were the rock and foundation of the church, Names like Peter come to mind, who preaches the first Christian sermon and sees all of these thousands of people coming to Christ in response to his message of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We think about Paul, who was a church planter and planted churches all over the world and was one who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. We can even think about James, who is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, was a major influence on the early Christian world. But it can be easy sometimes to not pay attention to John's impact. But John was an elder of the church. He was a pastor and a teacher. In fact, John was such a good teacher and such a deep teacher that the next generation of people that came after the apostles, the people who started to form what church looks like and the foundational beliefs of the church and even some of our earliest creeds, those men were directly influenced and taught by John. And so we see here that he is a pastor who equips the people of God. But not only that, he's an exile. He's somebody that because of his faith in Christ, because of his desire to preach the gospel, was taken out of his home and sent away to rot on his own. And now we see that John is a witness. In verse 1 and verse 2, we get this picture. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon place, take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And so again, what we're receiving here is not just John's ideas or opinions. 
John is sitting in the presence of Christ under the authority of God. God is speaking to him directly through this angel and giving him this revelation of who Jesus is, of what the church is supposed to be, and where God is taking the church. And so John sits as a faithful witness recording all of this. And so I love that we get this letter from a man who has a pastor's heart and a disciple's mind and a prophet's eyes and a Christian's hope. It's not accidental that God chose John to receive this revelation. But of course, more importantly, while John does matter, we know the ultimate importance lies on God. And so we just went through an entire sermon series, Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. And we walked through those chapters, and we called our sermon series Introducing God. And we looked at how God reveals himself in those first chapters of his word to be all of these incredible, wonderful things. We saw God's characteristics and his nature, the things that have been the same long before the earth existed and long after all of these things in Revelation will take place. That God is exactly who he is, and he revealed himself fully just in the first pages of Scripture. But he knows that we're prone to forget. And then even now, just a few weeks out of that sermon series, there are things that I preach that I've already forgotten about the nature of God. And so all throughout Scripture, he reminds us who he is. And the book of Revelation is no different. He introduces himself here in this passage, and we see some incredibly important things about the nature of God. First and foremost, we see that God is triune. We see this big doctrine of the Trinity laid out for us right here in this passage of Scripture. It says in verse 4, Grace to you. And peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so we can look at that. And clearly, the first part is talking about God the Father, who is and who was and who is to come. We see Jesus mentioned by name. But what about the Holy Spirit? This is strange language here where it says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. How do we deal with that? What do we make of that? How, what's the connection there to the Holy Spirit? I told you we're not going to spend a lot of time breaking down some of the minute details and arguments of the book of Revelation. But there are things that we absolutely have to dive into and can't ignore. And one of those things is how heavily the book of Revelation relies on numerology using numbers to communicate a deeper message. And so we're going to see numbers that come up pretty often throughout the book. Numbers like 3 and 6 and 7 and 12, multiples of 7, 1,000, and multiples of 1,000. And as we come to all those things, we'll talk about why they're used and some interpretations of how that happens. But the number 7 comes up in the book of Revelation often to represent completeness. And so, for instance, we see a letter going out to seven churches. And we can make the case that those are seven real churches that were receiving these letters. But it was also designed to go out to all of the churches, to the fullness of God's church. And so that number seven there is not just accidental or these are the seven random churches that God chose. There's meaning inside that number that this is a letter for all of God's people. And in the same way, this seven spirits, or in some translations it says the sevenfold spirit of God, 
is a representation of the completeness of God and of his Holy Spirit and who he is. And so just like in Genesis chapter 1, we saw that in the beginning, God the Father created the heavens and the earth. And it was dark and it was formless and it was empty, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We see Father and Spirit there in Genesis 1. And then John completes that picture in the Gospel of John saying, in the beginning was the Word or was Christ and he was with God and he was God. We see Paul tell us that all things were created through Christ and by Christ and for Christ. And so the Trinity is there present in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible and of the first book of the first chapter of the last book of the Bible. And so we see the holy triune God, which reminds us that God is not like us. And we can try to think of all the little analogies we want to use to describe the Trinity, that there is one God in three persons, but none of them work because there is nothing else in this universe like God, that he is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we already see a God that is difficult to comprehend. But just in case we missed it, we get some Trinity language there as it describes God as the one who is and who was and who is to come. And then later calls him the Alpha and Omega, taking that same idea and that same concept and then saying it again at the very last verse we talked about, who was and who is and who is to come. So this threefold repetition, if you're not paying attention, that's a lot of three. And the point there is that God is triune. But he's also unending. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega the first letter in the Greek alphabet and the last. I am the beginning and the end. And this makes me think about the message that he gives to Moses. Remember, God confronts Moses through this burning bush, and he begins to speak to him out of the bush, which is weird and freaky, and Moses had a completely reasonable response, being both curious and a little alarmed and afraid. And he comes, and God begins to speak to him, saying, you have a mission and a purpose. You are going to go into Egypt, and you are going to rescue my people out. And Moses starts making excuses, and one of those is, well, who am I even going to say is telling me to go? Am I going to go to the people and say, this bush told me to rescue you out? And sure, they'll fall in line and follow me out, risking their lives to escape the most powerful nation in the world. You've got to give me some more information. You've got to tell me who it is that is sending me. And God says, I am. That's not a complete sentence. Like, what do you mean you are? But he's saying, I am. I am existence. I am the one who was before all things. I am the uncreated creator. You go and tell them the only one true God is sending you. And again, now he's saying the exact same thing, saying, I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I was here before you, and I will never pass away. I will never end. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same God that Moses worshipped, the same God that led him into Egypt to rescue his people out of captivity, that is the same God who is giving you this revelation now. John says, this is who is sending this letter to you. The beginning and the end. The one who is and who was and who is to come. The first word and the final word. The beginning and the amen. And so we see a God who is not surprised by any of these things that are future-oriented in the book of Revelation. 
We see a God who is not surprised about any of the things that are going on in the life of the church in the first century as they endure hardship and persecution. We are looking at a God who knew all of these things long before John took a breath. Long before any of these things in the New Testament had taken place, long before in the beginning, this God who was and is and is to come had this plan worked out to its fruition. And that's pretty comforting. But not only that, he says that he is triune, that God is the Trinity, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, and also that he is worthy of glory and dominion forever and ever. I know I told you this last week, but one of the things that really grabbed my heart when I was thinking about preaching through this book was just the heart of worship that is constant from Revelation chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. And as I look through these passages of Scripture, and we're going to talk about one of those passages next week as we look at the church's response to this God who is revealing himself, as I'm seeing the worship around the throne of God, and as I'm seeing these angels worship, as I'm seeing the creatures around the throne worship, as I'm seeing John fall down and worship, I was wrecked with conviction thinking, I don't worship God like that. Am I even worshiping the same God? Because if they're worshiping God that way, why am I not? But they were worshiping this way because they know who God is. They really know who God is. And so John says, to him, to God alone, be the glory and dominion forever and ever. That there is no one better, there is no one higher, there is no one who is worthy of even a little bit of God's glory and honor because he is so far beyond us, so perfect in his righteousness and his holiness that he is worthy of all of the glory and honor forever and ever. Is that how you think about God? Is that how I address God? Is that how we worship him? If not... We're not worshiping the right God. If not, we need to pay attention as we go through the book of Revelation, as we see God revealing himself. Just these descriptions, this God who is so different from us because he's three in one that we can't fully grasp that or wrap our minds around it, that is reason enough to worship him in a way that is overwhelming. The fact that he is the one who is and who was and who is to come, that he's with us now, that he has been for all of eternity past and he will be for all of eternity future, that's a reason to worship God with everything that we have. And as we're going to see, because he's a God that uses all of that power and uniqueness and majesty and glory to save and love us, is something that should both wreck us with humility and build us up with passion and love. And so we need to be praying that this book changes the way that we worship God because we cannot see this picture and be unmoved. But then John narrows the focus down to one person of the Godhead, to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this feels like, as we've looked at this revelation, as God is pulling the curtain back on who Christ is, this feels like a spotlight zoning in on Jesus. And John begins with a biography, but not the one we expect. And I love this about John because this isn't the first time that he's come with a different angle approaching Jesus. Because Matthew and Luke both start with the birth narrative of Jesus, the one that we read on Christmas. 
Mark jumps into his ministry. But the Gospel of John begins with, in the beginning. And it doesn't begin on earth. It begins with Jesus, the Word of God, being with God for all of eternity. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when John gives us the biography of Jesus, he doesn't just roll through the resume of this Jesus that was born of the Virgin Mary, who was growing in wisdom and stature and favor with men, who went through the region and taught about the kingdom of God, who was put under trial under Pontius Pilate and was crucified and buried and risen again. We're going to talk about all those things. But when John gives us this revelation of Christ, he begins by saying this. In verse 5, he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. John begins with the incarnation. The truth that Jesus is the word of God made flesh. This is an echo back to the way he begins the gospel. That Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's not even just a Messiah. That Jesus is the son of God. He is the Word of God made flesh. He is, as the New Testament teaches us, the exact imprint of God in the very nature of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so John says you are looking at the faithful witness of who God is and who we are called to model our lives after. I think it's easy to neglect the incarnation in our lives, about thinking about the fact that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. That Jesus, as Paul said, tabernacled with us. That he came and met with us in a way that we could see and touch and understand that Jesus sat down at a table multiple times with this man. John knows that Jesus is who he is, not based on an ideology that was taught to him, but John is able to write this down saying he is a faithful witness to God, and I know this because I sat at a table with the God of the universe. And so we need to think more often of the incarnation and the nature of who Jesus is. As we look through the Gospels and as we look at Revelation, we are seeing God on full display. But he continues saying, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. When we look at the book of Revelation, it's about a lot of things. And we're going to go through those things over a very long time. It's going to take us months to get through this book, and that's okay because it is really awesome. But the book of Revelation is about resurrection. The theme of resurrection goes from start to finish through the book of Revelation. And I love when Paul tells us the importance of revelation, excuse me, of resurrection. Because Paul says that if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then we, people who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, should be pitied above all other people. Because we're going around making this claim that Christ has died and Christ has risen, and that because of that, because I believe in Jesus, that I am forgiven of my sins, that I've been made alive through Christ, and that I have an eternal hope in Jesus. But Paul says that if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then we are still dead in our sins and trespasses, and nothing can save us from them. And if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then the book of Revelation has no meaning for us at all. All of this is hinged on the truth that Jesus, the faithful witness, is the firstborn of the dead. This is a book of hope, not based on an idea not based on a religious principle, but based 
on the historical, true, bodily resurrection of Christ. That Jesus, the Word of God, was made flesh for us, was born into this world of a woman to redeem those who were under the law. And how did he do that? By suffering and physically dying, breathing his last breath, was buried and dead, and then three days later rose from the grave. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And as we'll get to later, Christ will come again. But also, as we look at this character of Christ, we need to not move too quickly. Because we've talked about the fact that we have this promise that anyone who reads the book of Revelation aloud or hears the book and does what it says will receive a blessing. And one of the first blessings that we see, one of the first promises that we see, falls in right here. Because John doesn't say, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, who was born from the dead. Or the only one who was born from the dead. He says, Jesus, the firstborn of the dead. And that's an adjective. That's a description that you don't need if Jesus is the only one who receives that kind of a resurrection. And so John is telling us that Jesus is the firstborn, but he's not the last one who will be born again from the dead. And this is a promise that anyone who puts their faith in Christ will receive that same resurrection. Remember, a few weeks ago when we talked about communion, and Paul tells us that if we are baptized into a death like Christ, that we will be given a resurrection like Christ in the exact same way, a physical, true, bodily resurrection. And so this is a promise to anyone who trusts in Christ that this hope of eternal life is not ideological, it's not nonsensical, but it is something that will really, truly take place in the life of anyone who trusts in Christ. Because Jesus is our hope of resurrection. The faithful witness of God and the firstborn of the dead. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. We talked about the style of this book. And it's intimidating. If you've never read through the book of Revelation before, the first few chapters read pretty easy. You've got some introductions with God, but not language that we haven't really experienced before. And then you get into the letters to the churches, and those just feel like letters to the churches throughout the New Testament. And then you get in to the later chapters, and it's just weird. All of a sudden, you start seeing all this imagery of seals and bowls and swords coming out of mouths and dragons, and it gets really intense and really heavy all of a sudden, and we think, what is this supposed to mean? But we talked about the fact that this is apocalyptic literature, that John is using symbolism to help teach something true. And part of the reason that he had to do that is because this book is treason. John was already in trouble for the claims that he was making about Christ. But now he's circulating this letter to all of these other Christians who are already living under persecution, and he's saying things like, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And when later on in this passage we see him talk about Jesus as the king of kings, this is not a title that just was made up for Christ. This is a phrase that Roman emperors would use about themselves, and Jesus is saying, no, no, you're not the king of this world. You're not the king of kings. I am. And so John is writing a treasonous letter and also at the same time accusing the governments that stand of blasphemy, saying these titles don't belong to you. 
You're not the king that you think that you are. Jesus Christ is the king of kings and Lord of lords. John is revealing here that Jesus is no longer simply the child born under Herod's persecution. He's no longer simply the one who says, give to Caesar what Caesar's and God's what's God's. He's not the one who is put on a mock trial by the governor of Jerusalem. But he is the risen and reigning king of heaven and earth now and forevermore. And so John is saying, this is who is writing the book. Not simply the king of the church. Jesus is not simply the one that the church should be looking to. He is the ultimate authority in the universe. The one that Paul said that one day every knee would bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not simply those who follow him here and now, but one day every king and ruler and emperor and dictator who thinks that they have all the power in the world in their hands is going to realize they have nothing as they kneel before Christ. And John is saying, this is the God who is writing to you. Not simply an example that you should live by, but he is your king. And so we need to learn to view Christ as king in the book of Revelation and also every day of our lives. To realize that he is not simply our savior, but he is the governor of everything that we live. That he is our king, that he writes our story and that we should follow him and serve him as such. And so this introduction is incredibly important because it lays the framework for how we are supposed to see God in all of his fullness, how we are supposed to understand the nature of Jesus all the way through this book. And as we see them in their fullness, as we see God in his fullness, it's going to start to reveal to us who the church is supposed to be. And this is sometimes going to be very direct, as we see in these letters, as this is what the church should do, this is what the church should not do. Sometimes it's simply going to be based on, if this is who Christ is, this is who we should be. And so we need to cling on to the nature of God and his gospel revealed in the book of Revelation. But it can't just be information. It can't just be something that we tuck away so that we can use it as a decoder for the rest of the book. This is meant to inspire us to action. This portrayal of Christ and his gospel demands that we respond. And that's what we're going to look like, look at next week as we try to understand how followers of Christ should respond to this God.